Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Follow me on Twitter at Twitter.com, TweetJHood. Also on Snapchat, SnapJHood. You follow me on Snapchat, I will follow you back. Guaranteed. Coming up, we will hear from Sean Farnham, friend of the program, UCLA Bruin, college basketball analyst for ESPN. We'll get his thoughts about what the Bulls and others will do in the NBA draft. You know, the NBA draft's right around the corner. We'll have coverage for you. It's a team with Chris Bleck. Uh, again, this upcoming year, um, we will have that coverage for you at 6 o'clock next Thursday uh, for our NBA Draft special. Hope that you are with us as we find out who the Bulls are going to take with number 7. And I've got tickets this hour. If you want to see Jim Gaffigan uh, on October 20th at the Chicago Theater, I've got tickets for you. Stay by your listening device now. You can win those tickets to see comedian Jim Gaffigan. He's had... HBO specials, several of them, seeing them on Netflix as well. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, one of the top comedians out there, and he's got um, he's going to be here. He's got tickets October 20th to give to you. It's our way of saying thanks for listening to Under the Hood with John of the Hood Weeknights here on ESPN 1000. We'll hear from uh, Sean Farnham on college basketball and also Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday. That comes your way at 930. If you are a wrestling fan or know of one, tell them to come to their listening device and check it out on the ESPN app or on ESPN 1000 as we talk about pro wrestling slash sports entertainment with Mike Johnson from pro wrestling insider.com. We'll hear from him coming up at nine 35. All part of the mix right here at our nine o'clock hour here on ESPN 1000. There's so many storylines coming out of the NBA finals last night. So many storylines, the Warriors survive. KD gets injured out for the rest of the season with the torn Achilles. There's some of the question marks that, that surrounded the Toronto Raptors. Certain um, things that happened from Nick Nurse as a head coach, first year as a head coach with this Toronto Raptors team. Some question marks, maybe mistakes that were made as far as his coaching. But the number one thing that some are looking at is the fan behavior at the Scotia Bank Arena in Toronto. When Kevin Durant went down, there was some cheers because I don't know if fans thought he'd be out for the rest of the game. No one really knew the severity of the injury, but they just knew that he was holding his ankle. And there were some fans there that were cheering the fact that Durant went down. And for some, it was appalling. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that the fans, the good fans of Toronto, would cheer the misfortune of Kevin Durant. I don't know why that was a surprise. Is this our, our have we just landed on Earth and watching sports in the in North America for the first time? Did you watch sports for the first time on June tenth, twenty nineteen? Have you not seen before uh, a fan base laughing or cheering the misfortune of a team that goes down with injury? Why was why was anybody surprised by this? There is there are fans and then there's fanatics. There are times that we can look at ourselves as fans and wonder, are we going over the top? You will tweet something. You'll put something on Facebook. You will snap something that is ignorant. And you will do it because you do it in the name of your favorite team. 
My favorite team is X, so everybody else sucks. I don't care about the athlete. I just care about my team winning. I care about my bet and whether or not I won my bet. I just care that my fantasy team won and I got the trophy. I've got the championship belt. I just care about my favorite whatever getting the job done. And I will tell you that there's more to sports than that. For some of you, it's linear that way, that you're looking at what you get out of it. And all of us get entertainment out of it. Doesn't matter what sport. Little league all the way to the pros, we watch sports for several reasons. One, it's a getaway from our everyday lives. And number two, we are into the competition because we're into the entertainment. But there are times that it goes over the top. And with, with Kevin Durant, with him being cheered, it wasn't the entire arena, but you heard that. It was audible. You can hear fans cheering the misfortune of Kevin Durant. Not even knowing the severity of the injury, just the idea that he was down, known his ankle. And so Raptors fans are like, yes, this increases our chances of winning. That shouldn't be a surprise. I wasn't even taken aback by it. Because if you've gone to any sporting event, you will have some fans that don't understand the difference in being a fan and being a fanatic. Did my team win? I'm rooting for laundry, as Jerry Seinfeld said. I'm just, why do sports fans get into their team? They're rooting for laundry. Because they're wearing the uniform, they're wearing the sweater, they're, they're, they're representing their team. So whatever happens, even if a player goes down, has to leave a building because of injury, whatever it takes, right? And so what happened there, it happened here in Chicago. It's happened in Philadelphia. It's happened in Los Angeles. It's happened in a lot of places where you feel bad at the, in the end, like, oh, he's got to be carried off. Oh, he needs help getting off the floor. Well, I'm going to applaud because everybody else applauds. But before that, there were those that were cheering the fact that Kevin Durant was going to be injured. So I I don't know why that was a major storyline because there are some fans that are ignorant. I'm a fan, and I know the difference between right and wrong. I know you probably do too, but maybe the guy next to you at the game doesn't know the difference. Hey, that guy's out, so now we get a chance to win now. Is that really the most important thing? For some, it is. <laughs> so I, I can't say that I'm surprised. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. And, and it's not for me to say fans shouldn't do that. What am I, who am I? I'm just one fan. Yeah, I wouldn't do it. You probably wouldn't do it. But there are people around you that will do it just to make sure that their team is supported. Toronto, yes, my team's going to win now because Kevin Durant's holding his ankle. The same injuries that he's had before, he's going to be carried off, and now I'm going to applaud that. It's crazy, but it's it's not surprising, though. Um, Jalen Rose had uh, several things to say about what's going on with Kevin Durant, and as I mentioned to you before, it's I know that the blame game is big in our politics, in our um, social media, in our sports and entertainment. We're all trying to figure out who's the blame, right? Instead of looking in the mirror, we just look at who's the blame. Kevin Durant's on the floor, and he gets hurt, so who do you blame? There are times there is no answer to that, actually. Sometimes it's just the player coming to a decision of saying that I want to be able to help my team win a championship. We're down 3-1. I want to go out there and try to get it done. But the big P word, the P word perception is the issue with Kevin Durant. The perception of that Twitter egg, the perception of that silhouette on Instagram, the perception of, if I don't get out there, people say that I'm soft. If I don't get out there, people will wonder, well, what, you know, what's, how come 
Clay came back, and how come Iguodala came back, and how come uh, some of these other players came back from injury, but you did not? Perception. He he signed off on it, just like the trainer signed off on it, just like the the uh, Bob Myers and Steve Kerr signed off on it. And guess what? He went out there and tried it, and he hurt himself. And it's going to more than likely be out all of next year. Perception. I don't think anybody twisted Kevin Durant's arm to get out there. He shouldn't have played, but he wanted to be able to help his team. And you see what happened. Jalen Rose said, we got our pound of flesh from KD. We got our pound of flesh. As media, as fans, as people who watch this league faithfully, we wanted to see KD give himself to us. We thought it was weak that he went join the Golden State Warriors. I didn't like that he joined the Golden State Warriors because when you go to the park, you want the two best players to pick teams, right. not join teams. Right. But since he joined the Golden State Warriors, now it was a quest for him to prove that he could be something bigger than just a back-to-back reigning finals MVP. That's why all year we have said that KD was leaving. Why? Because he was on the thirst for something that Golden State couldn't give him. We created that narrative. He would never be the dude in Golden State. That's always going to be Steph Curry's team. So therefore, he goes there, wins championships, but he got to leave to still validate himself. So now, congratulations, world. You got your pound of flesh. So the thoughts there from Jalen Rose talking about KD. And, and so Charles Barkley is just the guy that has to be able to be the stick in the beehive. The guy that wants to stir up the controversy is Charles Barkley from TNT. And as I mentioned, someone's got to be the blame, right? I'm sure you talked about this at work. I'm sure you talked about this on social media on, on who's the blame, right? Who do you blame for Kevin uh, Durant going down because of injury? Well, well, to me, he wants to be out there. And he was cleared to play. And there are some, and I, I've talked to a number of people in the Bay Area that covers the Golden State Warriors. Uh, there are some that say that um, that Durant may not have felt 100% comfortable out there, but I think perception was so big for him. And I just, I don't understand, I don't understand why someone has to be able to take the blame for this. Kevin Durant was out there trying to win a championship, and the idea that someone's got to take the blame for it, there's no blame. You feel bad for him. There's been parallels to Derrick Rose going down to injury when he played the Sixers in the playoffs. I've heard that parallel and the feeling in the in the room that, oh, my God, Derrick Rose got injured. You feel bad for him. Well, I feel bad for KD, too. The reason why is because I don't care about Twitter eggs as much as he does. I don't care about the silhouette on Instagram. He cares about those things, the perception. And, and he's a different cat than me. I, if I wasn't ready to play, I wouldn't play. He wanted to win a championship. And he was injured, and we all saw it. And so I, I feel badly for him. It's one of the best players in the NBA right now, and now he's not going to play anymore in the NBA playoffs. But, but, but you got to blame somebody, right? Why did this happen? Because he wanted to play. He wanted to play. He, he's no different than a lot of young players in this league now that want to play because they care about their legacy. They want to be an NBA champion. It's not about it's not a sleight of hand. It's not about free agency. It's not about next year. He wanted to play. He couldn't play. He only played a little bit. And you saw glimpses of it. He was getting hot, and then he goes down with injury. Glad you're with me here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app under the hood with Jonathan Hood. We turn to a UCLA Bruin. We turn to an analyst for ESPN covers college basketball like a blanket. You also see him on Get Up. He is Sean Farnham, and he joins me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Sean Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. 
How's it going? You know how's it going. Basketball, NBA, the draft's around the corner. You know how it's going. Oh, I thought you were I thought you were hyped and excited because you know I'm going to WWE live on Saturday night in Anaheim. That's what I thought you were excited about. Or that Becky Lynch liked my Instagram post today of my daughter wearing the man shirt after she was done working out. That's what I thought you were excited about. But yeah, we can talk. We can talk NBA. We're good. We can do that. We can do that. Actually, you know what? We're going to talk about both. How about this? I'm going to ask you an NBA draft question, and then I will follow it up with a WWE question. Can we do that? Beautiful. Let's do it. Let's okay. do it. All right. So. Um, this is something I should have asked a lot of our draft guests as we're right around the corner from the NBA draft. So I'll ask you, top to bottom, what stands out most about the quality uh, and the NBA potential in this draft? What stands out most? Limited. Limited. I mean, I really think that this is going to be a draft that we're going to look back on in five to seven years, and, and you know, most of the first-rounders aren't even going to be in the league. Um, just this, this, this draft is really a three-person draft, and then after that you're hoping to find uh, the diamond in the rough, the player that's going to be able to develop, maybe the guy that got overlooked a little bit. We talk about the, world, the guys of like Darius Garland and, and what might have been had he been healthy all year long for Vanderbilt. I, I, Bryce Drew would probably still be the coach of Vandy. I'd start with that, uh, and he may, he may be that fourth guy. But, I mean, after watching a year of Cam Reddish, am I excited about Cam Reddish at the next level of showing me any kind of consistency? Not, not right now. Uh, so it, it's a lot of, of guessing that's going to take place uh, in these individual workouts and the time that these general managers are spending with these players are going to be very important as far as determining what the right fit is. There'll be some other guys that show up. There'll be some guys that will be first-round picks, late-second-round picks, uh, or early second round picks, excuse me, uh, that will end up being good basketball players in the NBA. But I think at the end of the day, we're going to talk about a lot of misses inside the lottery as far as what teams are doing and who they're drafting. Sean, what, what's it going to take for Becky Lynch to cement herself and get over in the WWE as a superstar? Well, I think obviously knocking out Lacey Evans first, that that's going to be that's going to be on the forefront of everybody's mind right now as we head to the stopping ground. Yes. Uh, but I think that her persona, uh, kind of like that, that Stone Cold Steve Austin way, has got, almost gotten lost a little bit since she was, became Becky Two Belt. And I think she needs to get back to being the man, uh, and I think she needs to have that edge to her, uh, and I think that's going to be very important as her character development continues to roll along and become the face of the industry because essentially she's carried the load uh, leading up to WrestleMania, and then post-WrestleMania now they're still trying to find, figure out who they are and what direction they're going. Sean Farnham, ESPN and WWE college basketball analyst with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Many look at the Bulls at seven, Sean, and feel that if Jared Culver's there, he might fall to seven to the Bulls. What did you, I mean, I have obviously a big spotlight for Jared Culver uh, in the Final Four. What do you think of the six six shooting guard from Texas Tech? I love him. Uh, I think I think he is one of the lowest risk draft picks that you can find inside the lottery because you know what you're going to get with him. His ceiling isn't as high as some others, uh, because you kind of look at him and go, all right, well, how much better is he going to get? I think there are there's some room for offensive growth, um, but defensively he's about as good as he's going to be, and, that, and, and he's a really good defensive player. I, I think he's the type of guy that you draft, and you know that he's going to come off your bench uh, and maybe eventually move into a starter's role going forward, uh, that is going to be a very good player. 
I think a lot of times when teams draft in the lottery, the hope is that you're getting a franchise player that's going to change your organization. Jared Culver is not a organizational changing player. He is a very good 10-year vet. And I think what fans sometimes get lost in is the fact that being a 10-year vet, the league is full of 10-year vets that are role players, you know, uh, and, and that really have a significant role on a team that is successful but isn't a star, isn't a standout, isn't a game-changer for an organization. But start with the right people surrounding them, they can become a very, very good player, and I think that's what Jared Colfer is. I think he, if, if you're going to close your eyes and you're a Bulls fan, I think like a Malcolm Brogdon type, right? I mean, that, that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty good guy to be. Uh, you know, you're probably maybe never going to be an all-star, uh, but, but a very good basketball player on a very good team, hopefully one day for the Bulls. Sean, do you think that Shane McMahon is getting way too much television time lately? I do. I, I think that the storyline of the world's greatest wrestler has been overplayed a little bit. Obviously, we go back to the original uh, circumstances of that when the Miz won all the matches leading to it, and then he just had to win the last one. He really shouldn't even put himself in as the uh, then SmackDown uh, commissioner. I, I think that the storylines have kind of diverted on, onto Shane. I think the focus, I'd love to see the focus shift more to guys like Elias because, you know, WWE stands for walk with Elias, and, and I'm a big Elias fan. So I'd like to see Elias get a little bit more of a push. I also yeah. think that Drew McIntyre, it's diminishing his, his potential uh, by being kind of like the sidekick to Shane McMahon when I think he's got main event card written all over him. Um, with John Morant in Memphis, how much could he make a difference for the Grizzlies? What do you think about him uh, being with the Grizzlies? Because it's pretty obvious that he should be the number two pick, right? He will be. Uh, he's got great. He's got great potential. He's got to do a lot better job of limiting his turnovers. I mean, that that's been a huge issue for him, and the competition in which he played at uh, is nowhere even close to what he's going to see at the next level. Now, at the same time, you could say the teammates around him are going to be a lot better at the NBA level than they were at, at Murray State. But he has an innate ability to see the floor. And I did this this breakdown of who he kind of reminds me of and what kind of player he could be. And it's easy to draw the Russell Westbrook comparison because of the elite-level athleticism and being able to finish in the paint. But I think he's got a little deer and fox to him as well. A lefty that's crafty, uh, loves to attack and get inside the paint, forces that back line to have to step, and then when they step, he's dumping down or throwing it up to the rim for lobs. I think he's going to be a very good NBA player. And I think, you know, we talked about being the three-person draft. He's one of the three uh, that I think that, you know, from Memphis' perspective, you're getting your point guard moving forward. Uh, you put him with Jaron Jackson. I think that's a good young nucleus of two players that you can really start to build around if you're Memphis, because really right now in the Western Conference, too, it's not like Memphis is, is going to be making a huge push right away. It's going to be a slow process. Those two are very nice pieces to start building towards and, and watching them mature and trying to keep them in Memphis and then build around them to allow them to make a push to try to get into the playoffs. Sean Farnham from ESPN with me, Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN apps. We talk about college basketball, the NBA draft, and <clears throat> the WWE John Cena said today, Sean, that he's thinking about retirement, and I thought that he was kind of you know, going that way anyway. So where do you place John Cena amongst the best that you've seen? Well, I think you have to look historically. It always starts for me with the nature boy, Ric Flair, uh, and then mm-hmm. quickly right behind him would be Hulk Hogan just because of their, their mass appeal uh, and the commercialization of the industry overall. Uh, thereafter, uh, it's easy to go to Stone Cold Steve Austin, 
The Undertaker, and, and then The Rock. Uh, to me, I think Cena falls outside of that top five. Uh, there's there's been so many character shifts and changes. Obviously, his accomplishments are, are second only to the Nature Boy Ric Flair. Uh, but I think the way that his latter stages of his career has gone, being a part time guy uh, that has really just popped into to try to boost up ratings and or pay per view buys, I think has diminished a little bit uh, as his focus has shifted more to the movie industry, which he does a great job of. I would have liked to seen a clean break, kind of like what The Rock did where when The Rock made that decision to go in that direction, he just went in that direction, uh, and he would make a couple of appearances, but it was never for matches. It was just, you know, to wave his hand, light The Rock emblem on fire at WrestleMania, uh, you know, somebody come out and interrupt him, and he rock bottoms him and, and, and let it go. I think it's time for Cena to go. I think the WWE is going to go through a transitional period right now as, as they've got to identify where their future is and who they're going to align with. Uh, because now there's pressure on them. They haven't felt pressure in, in quite some time, but with all elite wrestling and what Cody Rhodes uh, is building, they had a very successful launch in Double Down. And, of course, John Moxley, formerly known as Dean Ambrose, makes the shift over. There's a lot of rumors that maybe CM Punk is going to be on his way eventually over there. Those are potential game changers in the industry, and I think competition is a good thing and, and will force the industry to elevate to the top. You do know that you're missing a check here from the company. You could be doing this full-time. You understand that you could be part of the WWE arm of the company. I, if anybody knows that connection and wants to make me do that, I'm more than willing to. Uh, that, is, that is not a problem. Farnham, I think you and I are the only ones that know that you are, or maybe Mike Greenberg, like the, the only ones that know that you can break down wrestling as well as you do college basketball. I think you're, you're missing money here. I think Greeny figured it out the day after WrestleMania when Kofi Kingston and Becky Lynch came in the studio. Uh, and we're like, okay, so ready? Go, Sean. <laughs> I was like, hey, I was there last night. Here it is. <laughs> like, it was, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. By the way, those two uh, extremely awesome people away from the camera, away from the spotlight, just sitting down and talking to them. Really super cool. Um, and look, you know, it's entertainment, and my, my dad is my dad was the one that got me into to wrestling in the WWE back uh, circa 1984 when Hulk, mm-hmm. Hulkamania just started running wild, uh, and it's kind of carried through. And now I've got three kids, and my kids love it. And uh, on Saturday night, we can't go on Monday night. Monday night Raw is at the Staples Center, uh, but unfortunately, because of kids' schedules and whatnot, we couldn't make that one. So we're going to go to the live event on Saturday down in Anaheim after my daughter's soccer tournament. It's going to be a lot of fun, and it's, it's just great entertainment. My dad's coming down. Uh, so it'll be kind of like a Father's Day treat for his grandchildren to be with him, and we're going to be sitting second row at the uh, WWE Live event uh, in, in Anaheim. That's really cool. I will ask you one more thing, uh, because it could be, well, for the Bulls, it could be Cameron Reddish, who you always talked about. You talked about Culver. What about Kobe White, the 6'5 uh, shooting guard from North Carolina? What What do you think his upside is? Um, I think there's a lack of consistency that would concern me. Uh, he is a great scoring guard, and Roy Williams labeled him the best scoring guard that he's ever coached. Uh, that's saying a lot. He had a bunch of 30-point games. I think it ended up being like four 30-point games this season for North Carolina. But there were other games where he was a no-show. Uh, and I think in the professional ranks, you, you've got to know what you're getting, uh, and you've got to be dependable and accountable. Uh, there are plenty of guys that can go out and get you 30 on a given night, uh, and then you look at the end of the season and go, man, he averaged 15 a game. Yeah, he went for 31, 9-0 the next. 
you know, uh, that's that's not what you want uh, because you, as a coach in the NBA, you're going to end up your job is on the line. You've got to put out the people that are most dependable, and that would be my one concern for Kobe White. He he has all the tools necessary offensively to do it. He's got to get better at the defensive end of the floor. Um, and he's got to just become more consistent on the offensive end of the floor. He's got to know when to pick and choose the opportunities at the, at the professional ranks when you, you're surrounded by a ton of talent. How, how will that work out? Because he does want the ball in his hands. He was a point guard at North Carolina. He's going to want his, the ball in his hands as much as he possibly can in the NBA as well. And as, he, as the league gets more to this positionalist style of basketball where whichever guard gets the ball in his hands, just bring it to the floor and heck, you know, we even saw Marcus Saul bring the ball up the floor last night for the Raptors. Everybody's bringing the ball up the floor. It becomes a little bit less of who's dominating the ball, but you also have to know their personal strengths as far as when the ball's not in their hand, do you notice them out on the floor? Do they make an impact still? Are they cutting? Are they moving? Are they, are they doing the things that, you know, we talk about Steph shooting so much. Part of the things that Steph does so well for the Golden State Warriors is he moves well without the ball. So when the ball isn't in his hands, you can't relax defensively because if you do, he's going to be wide open and get the ball right back. If you're chasing him, now what are you doing? You're not paying attention to where the ball is. Now it allows better floor spacing for other guys to score or to operate and be successful with the strength of their game. And I think that if you're a young guard coming in this league right now, there's two things you have to do. One is you have to be able to shoot the ball. If you can't shoot the ball, you can't play in the NBA right now at the guard position. Two, you've got to be able to have great endurance and be able to chase at the defensive end of the floor You've got to be able to move on the offensive and the floor and, and be in that consistent motion aspect because it, the isolation ball is kind of slowly drifting away in the NBA. Uh, and when you go to the ISO game, it's be, becoming a lot easier to defend. We saw it with teams like the Houston Rockets. When you get into the postseason and you're in the playoffs, it's a very difficult seven-game series for you if you're going to just ISO James Harden and try to set on ball screen. Teams defend it differently in the postseason than they do in the regular season. You can find success there, but it's harder to find success in the latter stages of the postseason when you're playing against good, elite defensive teams that can switch and can show. And so I think that's one of the things, if you're looking at Kobe White, those are some of the question marks I have, is can he do that on a consistent level when you're talking 82 games plus the preseason plus maybe a postseason uh, once it gets to that point. My friend, as always, I appreciate your time. Thanks for giving us your, your wrestling and your college basketball thoughts. No problem. You, not only do you get this insight, but you get these hands. That's Ron Stroman. <laughs> that's enough. All right, that's enough. Sean Fardo is with us here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. I don't want the hands from Sean Fardo. Let's turn now to Jesse Rogers, who covers the Cubs for ESPN.com. It's the Cubs and the Rockies. Here's Jesse, who files a report. All right, Jay Hood. Uh, Rockies just extended the lead to three to one here in the fifth inning. Jose Quintana struggling right now. He walked the first two men of the inning. Then the top of the order came up. He gives up an RBI single to Trevor Story. A nice running catch by Hayward has kept this game close. Now he's got to get Nolan Arenado out with two guys on. But it looks like uh, Quintana's coming out. Brad Brock's going to take over. So. Katana, okay, though. I mean, three runs at Coors Field, not bad. We'll see if these two runners on base cross the plate. Now, the Cubs offense hasn't done much. Jason Hayward is about it. Two for two tonight, a home run to left field, a single to right. Other than that, uh, the story of the game is rookie Peter Lambert, Jay Hood. Two career games in the majors, both against the Cubs, 
Within five days of each other, he's thrown a total of 12 innings, given up just two runs. He pitched five today. They pinch it for him here in the fifth, as uh, they don't want to face. Uh, they don't want him to face the Cubs a third time through. But not a good night at the plate after seeing him five days ago. The Cubs did not improve on anything. Just that Hayward home run, the difference. Two, uh, three to one now. Rockies lead with Arenado up, two men on. Back to you. All right, Jesse, thank you. Next time that you hear WWE, be the second caller. Regular line, 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our phone number. When you hear WWE, next time you hear that, in, the next, in this half hour, we'll hook you up with Jim Gaffigan tickets. Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, is going to be at the Chicago Theater on October 20th. Second caller, next time you hear WWE, coming up after this commercial break, when you hear those three letters, WWE all in a row, be the second caller. We'll hook you up with tickets. Our way of saying thanks for listening to Under the Hood. Tuesday, Rustling Tuesday is next. Jonathan Hood. I'm so hood. On ESPN 1000. Tuesday. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event of the evening for the Worldwide Wrestling Federation Heavyweight Championship. Wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen. Our first event of the evening is a one-fall match with a 15-minute time limit. There ain't nobody, there ain't nobody in wrestling who can make me quit. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. Tuesday. We are what wrestling's all about. New York City here, Chicago here, Jamie on my left, Linda on my right. But I'm not telling any of the girls. Who I'm going to give it to in Chicago until that night. Tuesday, wrestling. Tuesday returns to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. It's time for Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app after every SmackDown Live, Tuesday, half hour after the show's over. We'll hook you up with Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday right here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. If you're a wrestling fan, if you're a pro wrestling fan, we already got a little bit of that from Sean Farnham. <laughs> He's a big WWE mark. Uh, but we give you Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday every Tuesday night at 930. Glad that you're with us here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. I got a chance to talk to Mike Johnson from PW Insider. Go to pwinsider.com. I asked Mike Johnson a number of questions, including the state of wrestling in 2019. What? Uh, how does this remind you of wrestling's past? It does, but it doesn't. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are very excited about all elite wrestling going on TNT, sort of assuming that this is going to be a recreation of the Monday Night War in some form. I have to think that's what's going to happen here. Technology has changed. They're not going to be on the same night, and even if they were, with the advent of DVRs and streaming technology and video on demand and everything else, there's not that sense of priority that you need to watch it right now immediately or else the world's going to end and you're going to miss something, and who knows what's going to happen. But I do feel like right now, more than any other time in the last 10 or 15 years, there's this overall overwhelming feeling of excitement of there's more wrestlers who are going to be on larger platforms than they've ever been before. 
There are more wrestlers making more money than they've ever made before. There's a larger alphabet soup of promotions who are all putting out good to great wrestling. Uh, there's more of a feel of different dimensions of pro wrestling, whether it be Lucha Libre or a promotion like MLW that's like a hybrid of Lucha and American-style wrestling or New Japan Pro Wrestling, which has its own flavor coming into the United States on a more consistent basis. Uh, or even AEW, which is going to be, you know, something, com- you know, sort of like combining uh, sports-oriented programming and perspective with the best of WCW and the best of what we've seen from the places like Ring of Honor and MLW and, and New Japan Pro Wrestling and kind of creating this cool amalgamation, which is what the, the last show that they did, the Double or Nothing show in Vegas kind of felt like. It felt like a WCW sort of production with this amalgamation of some of the good stuff from WCW, ECW, New Japan, Ring of Honor, but uh, you know, under a different banner and with a different sort of feel. So, I mean, I, I don't think wrestling overall is as hot as it was in the days with Steve Austin and The Rock, where they were on the cover of TV Guide. You couldn't walk around the corner without seeing an Austin 316 shirt. Right. But I think there are more pockets of wrestling fandom that are being serviced now than ever before, specifically by different smaller groups. And there's more content now overall that I think anybody can keep up can keep up with. I have trouble keeping up with it and I'm paid to keep up with it. <laughs> right. And like this past week this past weekend I covered five shows. I went to four shows live, plus I covered the WWE show in Saudi Arabia and I woke up and I was I, and I couldn't even remember what I saw because there was so much. And I don't mean that like it wasn't memorable. There were good things and bad things on all wrestling shows, like always. But it was just such a glut of content. Then you throw in New Japan Pro Wrestling at one of their biggest shows of the year. Then WWE has live events outside of Saudi Arabia. They've got TV tapings. They had Raw yesterday, tonight SmackDown, and so on and so on and so on. There's so much that it's almost like you're walking through Disney World and you don't know what part of the park to go to first because there's just this overwhelming sense of bright lights and shiny objects everywhere. And that's a great problem for pro wrestling to have, but I don't think overall there's sort of this powerhouse feeling of pro wrestling is taking over the world the way that it did during the days of Monday Night Raw versus WCW Nitro, and Goldberg and Steve Austin were the biggest, hottest stars in the universe. I don't think we're there yet. AEW could spark something. We might get back there in six months or a year, but I think we're on the precipice of wrestling being hotter to the general public. But I think within the bubble of pro wrestling fandom, there's more than ever before. That's what excites me, because the more there is, the more there is for me and me and you to talk about, the more there is for me to write about, you know, and as someone who loves wrestling, that's what I want. I want there to be more and more on, on a grand scale, and hopefully we're heading in that direction. Mike Johnson from PWInsider.com with Jonathan Hood on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN 1000, and of course Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Uh, and I want to get your, your thoughts about the creative of WWE. Uh, I think that if, at, at the at the core of a wrestling fan, um, promoters want you to be patient. They want you to be able to watch week to week to find out where a storyline is going. I'm just wondering from your standpoint, when you're watching WWE, in particular Raw and SmackDown, is it as dysfunctional behind the scenes as it is on television? Yes, it is. Uh, you know, you've got a crew of talents, male and female, who want to work their hearts out and just leave it all out there for the audience. There's not one wrestler on that roster that works for WWE, whether they're a top star or they're on the, on, they're on the undercard, who want to go out there and specifically have a poor segment or a poor match. But you can have the best big brass band in the world, but if you don't give them the sheet music, 
kind of how I look at WWE right now. WWE is written specifically through the vision of Vince McMahon. And Vince is a 70-something-year-old gentleman who no doubt is a genius and will be the benchmark of all wrestling promoters who have ever lived and whoever will live in terms of greatness, in terms of success. But I think if you're 73 years old, it's a little hard to figure out what's on the, what's on the pulse of pop culture and what's going to make your audience really care. Listen, I'm 44. I could not tell you what a 13 or a 15 or a 17-year-old kid looks at pop culture, looks at in terms of who are the pop stars of the day. You know, I can say, oh, John Bon Jovi was a huge pop star when I was in high school. No one's going to care about John Bon Jovi if you're in that age bracket. Mm -hmm. The world has changed. Like, you know, just think like you know, the whole YouTube community, how popular that is when they've got personalities and celebrities in that own world, in that, in that world. But if you're not someone who's paying attention to the YouTube world, they could walk past you in the street and you wouldn't be like, oh, that's a person who makes a billion dollars a year off streaming. The world has changed, and I think, you know, where, where Vince McMahon has kind of repeated history. There was a point in time, and Mick Foley wrote about it in his first book, after Brian Pillman had passed away, that Vince, in October of 97, had a meeting with the roster, and he said, maybe I don't have all the, I'm paraphrasing obviously, maybe I don't have all the answers anymore, we're going to start to loosen things up and let you be yourself, and not, and not try and strongly create everything myself. And he left the door open for there to be more creativity. And out of that creativity, um, Rockabilly and the Roadie became the New Age Outlaws. And Val Venus was born. And Mick Foley was able to go from being the guy under the Mankind Mask to the Three Faces of Foley. And Triple H went from being Hunter Hearst Helmsley and eventually evolved into the game. And so on and so on and so on. And I think they're at that same point now where Vince McMahon, in my opinion, needs to look around and go, you know what? Maybe I don't have all the answers. I'll take a step back and let these people try and fill in the gaps as opposed to strongly scripting every word and, and, and having segments where there's a 45-minute Shakespearean monologue with everybody coming out one by one to set up a tag team match that's going to be eight minutes in length later on in the night. Like I, I feel like they have not upgraded their show since the days of Nitro versus Raw. Mm -hmm. And it, you, it very much the week, and I'm not talking about the pay-per-views. Pay-per-views are a different animal. Like, there's good wrestling on those. I'm not talking about NXT. There's great wrestling on that. There's good storytelling on those shows. But the average Monday Night Raw, the average Tuesday Night SmackDown Live shows, you know it, I know it, everyone listening here know it. There's a formula. It's very formulaic. It's very similar. And it, every time they break out of the box and they do something interesting, we all go, wow, that was cool. The next week or the week after, they're right back in the box and they're staying the course and they're back on cruise control. And they, you know, their their live events are down. They admitted on their stockholder calls that the events are down. The streaming service has grown, but with small incremental growth every uh, every quarter. It's not where they want it to be. They're going to reboot it and change it up. And it it all comes down to the primary driver, the captain of the ship, is Vince McMahon. And everything else that is seen on those shows goes through his eyes, and it's his vision. And if his vision is not matching with the vision of what his audience is looking for out of pro wrestling, something's askew. How do you tell the boss he's wrong? How do you tell Coca-Cola it doesn't taste good anymore when Coke's like, we've made billions of dollars doing Coke this way? Mm -hmm. That's the problem WWE has now. And yeah, the creative is the, I don't blame any specific writer. I don't blame any specific producer who works there. At the end of the day, Vince McMahon gets all the acclaim for being the Walt Disney of pro wrestling. 
got to take the blame for when it's not working out. If uh, Disney's parks, you know, goes down 75% in attendance, Disney has to look at themselves and say, what are we doing wrong? What are we, what attractions are we not bringing to people that they want to give us their money? And WWE has to do the same thing. If their ratings are down, they have to say, what are we not presenting on our TV that people are not willing to watch us? Uh, and and I, I think they haven't figured out the formula yet. I, I think there's a lot of people who look around and go, yeah, something might be wrong here, but how do you tell, how do you make Vince change when his argument would be, well, we just got a billion-dollar TV deal from Fox, and we got a billion-dollar TV deal to renew with USA Network. We're doing fine, pal. Think about that. Like, like everyone will complain. You and you and I, you and I are no different than the person listening to this. We're all going to sit there and go, man, there's something wrong with this show. But imagine trying to walk into that room and tell that man who defined the entire genre, you know what, dude? You don't know what you're doing anymore, and this is wrong because... And he's going to look at you and say, we just got $2 billion TV deals in the last year, and we're going to get a brand new TV deal in England, and we're going to get more money when our India deal is up, and those are our primary revenue drivers more than anything else, and we're making more money than we've ever made in the history of WWE's existence. How could we be wrong? That's a hard argument to try and sell back to him that just because he's got all this money that he's wrong. But you and I know that's the position that the business is in. But, that the buildings are made half full. It's all, but I mean, trying to get him to change, trying to get him to change the way he does, he he does things at his age when he's locked into his 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 way of doing things. That's, I mean, that, that's you know, that's Hercules trying to hold up the globe, man. Yeah. I don't know how you, I don't know how you fix things. It's well, a hard position to be, in, but yeah, it's a dysfunctional creative team right now. Well, here's, here's what I would tell him, Mike, and he'd probably fire my ass, but I would say this. Yes, we have all, all this money, but don't never, uh, never confuse activity with accomplishments. The idea that, yes, they have these big deals and for with NBC Universal and with Fox is great, but when you have the most talented roster, because we're this, uh, around the same age, this is the most talented roster that the WWE's ever had since he was able to get talent from Crockett at the NWA, since he was to, to, to raid uh, Vern's uh, territory in the AWA, uh, getting guys out of Portland, getting guys out of Dallas. It was a huge roster, 88, 89, 90, 91 during that time, but these are the most talented uh, wrestlers that he's ever had across the globe. But yet we continue to hear, well, the WWE is having a hard time building stars. You could actually, in the old days, you could have a top 10 for each one of the belts, the 50 belts they have in the WWE. You can actually have a top 10 and be able to build from there and have interesting matches. But that's not the direction that they go. And so the, the idea that, yes, we have all these deals is fine, but your product is watered down. The best thing that could happen to that company is all the wrestling shows up with a completely different production in terms of the way it looks, the way it's presented, the way the creative is set up, the way the wrestling is done, the way the show is shot. Because if that happens, even if all the wrestling doesn't turn around and draw 5 million people a week, I would hope they would. That means they'd be doing better than WWE. That means wrestling with the hourglass of wrestling would completely flip over. But even if they do something completely different and great that's auspicious and they are just doing okay in the ratings, just the fact that someone else will come in and kind of smack pro wrestling upside the head uh, hopefully would mean that WWE and Impact or whoever else would absorb some of the grander and fresher ideas via osmosis and change up pro wrestling and get better. Remember, the, one of the most influential, influential things that happened to the WWE 
was absorbing pieces of ECW and creating the Attitude Era, right? They right. made far more money than ECW ever did. But ECW fans who were there can always go, well, that happened, the women were used more, and the tables and the chairs and the violence and the beer. That are, Those aspects all came from this, 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 and this, and this. I hope all the wrestling, which is going to be on a far bigger platform than ECW ever got to be on, or any wrestling company in many years has ever gotten to be on, changes up pro wrestling and makes everybody kind of look at it and tilt their head and go, oh, we didn't think of that. Maybe we can do this. And the creative overall for everybody gets better. Like, there's more great wrestling matches every week, whether it be Raw, SmackDown, MLW, whatever. There's more great wrestling matches now on a week-to-week basis than there's ever been in pro wrestling history. Go look at some of those old Nitros and Raws. Some pretty terrible wrestling on them. (laughs) There's some good stuff, but a lot of it's pretty bad, too, if you're going to be fair. ECW, the same thing. There was great stuff, and there's stuff that doesn't hold up. But we have great wrestling inside the ring every week now. What they need more than anything else is creative that's compelling to make people want to come back, cliffhangers that make people want to come back, and characters that become embedded in the DNA of the great wrestling. Steve Austin didn't always have the best wrestling match. He became more of a brawler as that character evolved. That character made him more money than being stunning Steve Austin ever did in WCW. And you could argue, oh, well, in 92, he was in the Dangerous Alliance. I was the best year he ever had in terms of entering wrestling. But Stone Cold Steve Austin hitting a bunch of stunners and hitting the booth at his press and throwing up the double fingers and drinking the beer, that made him that made him millions of dollars, and stunning Steve Austin wasn't going to do that for him. There need to be more characters um, and characters that drive the ship. And the wrestling's great, and I love wrestling. Nothing makes me happier than watching good wrestlers do mat wrestling and back and forth. Reversal, reversal, they jump up and they look at each other and everyone goes, oh, and they all clap. It's cool stuff. It never gets old, right? Guerrero Malenko, I'll still, I'll still watch that stuff to the end of time. I still love it. Yeah. But the wrestling doesn't drive the card. The characters drive the card. They need more characters in WWE. They, you know, for, for all the talk of Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins and Brock Lesnar, and people always commend Brock's there. But Brock's a walking, talking, living supervillain. It's a character that people can look at and relate to. And that's why they're always going to go back to him, because they don't have huge characters like that, you know? And, and I think, you know, they need that. They need some consistent storytelling. And the one thing that the All Elite Wrestling pay-per-view showed us is we need cliffhangers in wrestling again. Too many times wrestling ends with a big old, oh, we're out of time, guy, folks. Bye, folks. Show's right. over. Right. Or the baby face wins. Everybody's happy. Look what happened at the end of Double or Nothing. John Moxley shows up. He beats the living heck out of Chris Jericho. Abuses poor referee Paul Turner, who didn't deserve that. He's a good official. <laughs> beats up Kenny Omega. They brawl out of the. They brawl out of the ring. It's an intense, legitimate-looking brawl. They go to these giant poker chips. Kenny Omega gets DDT with the dirty deeds on the chip, and then gets the Death Valley driver off, and we go off with John Moxley standing there tall, having completely decimated the entire main event scene of all the wrestling. What's going to happen next? I don't know. We're off the air. Jonathan Hood. So pay attention to my word, because it's the truth. Meditation is the mind. It brings the youth. It's like a verse you could never read out of a book. Dropping the line in your mind like a fish hook. On ESPN 1000. We thank you for listening and being part of the program here on ESPN 1000 of the ESPN app. Our thanks to you for listening. Our thanks to Tim and from Midlothian and Tim from Orland Park. They won the tickets to see Jim Gaff- McGaffigan. It's going to be great. Jim Gaffigan, a great comedian. Our thanks to Jesse Rogers, Quentin Richardson, Sean Farnham, Mike Johnson, 
and Sean Davis on the other side of the glass producing and directing the program. All right, all right see you uh, tomorrow, 7 to 10. Full show tomorrow, 7 to 10, right here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. I'll talk to you Wednesday. Good night. Jonathan Hood. I'm so good. On ESPN 1000.